It's great to be with you today. We were preaching last weekend, as you know, across the mountains at a family camp. I was given the assignment to preach four times from Friday evening through Sunday morning. It was, uh, I guess I would call it, wonderfully exhausting. And uh, if you wonder what wonderfully exhausting might be, it means uh, you're worn out but feeling happy about it. So uh, <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're weary but content. It was wonderfully exhausting. Great time of fellowship, renewing acquaintance with some old friends as well as some meeting some new friends. You know, and I just thought as we were leaving there last week and through the course of this week, I have thought a number of times the, the family of God is a wonderful and blessed place to be. And if you are not sure that you are in, truly in the family of God, truly in Christ, I would love to explain to you how you can know for sure. But let's return to our study in the Gospel of Mark today. We are in chapter 6 of what uh, we often call Mark's Reader's Digest Condensed Version of the Life and Ministry of the Lord Jesus. Students of the New Testament have listed, as they look at the life of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have listed about 37 recorded miracles that Jesus performed. And we say recorded miracles because we know that Jesus did far more than what is specifically recorded or written down for us. The Apostle John ended his gospel by saying that if everything that Jesus said and did had been written down, the world could not contain the books. But there was enough written, he said, so that we could know who Jesus Christ really was and we could place our complete trust in him. But out of those 37 recorded miracles added up from all four Gospels, the only miracle, the only one that appears in all four of the Gospels is the one we're going to read today, commonly called the feeding of the 5,000. It is in Matthew chapter 14, it's in Mark chapter 6 where we're reading today, it's in Luke chapter 9, and it's in John chapter 6. So so we have several details that are recorded by one writer that that another may not mention, and it makes a, a very fascinating record of an absolutely fantastic supernatural revelation of the creative power of Jesus Christ. And the omniscience of Jesus Christ, omniscience meaning all-knowing, and and the amazing compassion of Jesus Christ in the face of astounding unbelief. And when you meditate on and think through what actually took place here, it is absolutely mind-blowing. So let's read it, and then we will work to understand what actually took place, and then we'll make some applications for us. So we're in Mark chapter 6. There are, there's a Bible on every row if you do not have one and would like to read along. Uh, and if you do not have a Bible with you today, there should be one, a black covered hardback Bible. On, uh, there's one on every row, and you're welcome to join us as we follow along as we, as we read this. Mark chapter 6, and we will begin to read in verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. 
And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Or buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. So when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves. I'll pause there just a moment. You ever wonder why people who are following Jesus pray before their meals? This, this is one of the reasons. We're just trying to follow the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not some legalistic something that God's going to, you know, we, we joke about you don't want to eat unblessed food. Uh, you know, but, uh, but, we're not, but, but seriously, that's why followers of Jesus pray before they eat. Because the Lord Jesus did, and we see this not only here but several places. So he, he takes the he takes the food, uh, he takes uh, uh, there in verse forty one. Take up the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two, as well as the two fish, he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Jesus has sent his 12 apostles out, two by two, earlier in this chapter, we saw it earlier in chapter 6, to preach all over Galilee. He took the 12 apostles, he divided them up in pairs of two, and he sent them out to preach all over Galilee, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to preach the message Jesus had been preaching. He had, he had delegated, we saw in earlier in chapter 6, he had also delegated some of his supernatural powers to them so that their miracles could verify and validate their message. They are preaching repentance, turning from sin, and preparing your heart for the arrival of the promised Messiah, the anointed one from God. They are representing the Lord Jesus. They are expanding his ministry times six, because now you've got six teams of people out there preaching, preaching Jesus' message and performing similar miracles that he did, serving as his ambassadors, as his re representatives. Now, the scripture does not record how long they were gone on this assignment, but we can presume several Several weeks at least, if not a couple of months. So we see them here in verse 30 coming back to gather with Jesus and report what they had done. They were, in a sense, reporting him to the boss. He's the rabbi. He's the one who called them to follow him. He's the one who commissioned them and sent them out on this assignment. So all six teams now have come back to Jesus to give him a report. That's what it says. Now they, they, they told him all things both that they had done and what they had taught. They were verifying with the Lord Jesus Christ that we're teaching the right things, we're doing the right things, we're reporting back to our Lord and Savior to tell Him what we've been doing. So, so we see them uh, coming back in verse 30 to do that. They all come back, and they're exhausted now, as one could imagine. 
Because the same thing has happened to them that's been happening to Jesus for months. They, they are getting mobbed by the people, so much so that they can hardly even sit down and eat. And so Jesus says, let's, let's get away and let's, let's rest up for a bit. Let's see if we can escape getting mobbed by these crowds and get a little R&R, as we call it, rest and relaxation. So they sail up the coast a little ways. Dr. Luke records that they're sailing toward a deserted area where there's no towns or houses. And uh, that, that belonged to a city called Bethsaida, just outside the city called Bethsaida. Now, there are no archaeological ruins of Bethsaida, so historians aren't exactly sure of its precise location. But they have a pretty good guess that it's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, just east of where the Jordan River empties into the Sea of Galilee. So it would be about, from where they were at Capernaum, it would be about four miles across the north end of the lake, and, and they would sail from Capernaum over to this spot. Well, the people standing on shore, they watch, and they see where he's going. And they figure out where he's most likely headed, and they start running around the lake shore to get to the place that they're guessing Jesus and the apostles are going. Now, along the lake shore, it's about eight miles from Capernaum to Bethsaida, rather than four straight across the lake. But they've got it figured out, because when Jesus and the twelve arrive in this rural, empty area outside Bethsaida, the crowd's standing there on the shore waiting for them having run and walked at a good clip to cover the eight miles while the apostles and Jesus sailed four miles. Now, when I think about that, I mean, that to me is almost like mass hysteria. It's like screaming fans chasing the latest rock star all over the country. Uh, no, no plan, no thought, no preparation. We just run eight miles around the lakeshore to get to Jesus and his little band of 12. Jesus has been healing every illness every disease, every disability. He has a 100% success rate. He has given similar authority to the 12 apostles. They have traveled all around Galilee preaching the gospel and performing miracles. So now the entire region of Galilee is in this absolute uproar. Thousands of people are chasing Jesus and the apostles all over the countryside and in this state of near hysteria to try to get some personal benefit from this incredible prophetic ministry of this rabbi from Nazareth. Now, under, if you think back in Bible history, under the ministry of Moses, there were large numbers of miracles taking place. And Moses' ministry lasted about 40 years. Then there was a gap of about 600 years with very, very few miraculous things happening. And then you come to the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, and you got 40 or 50 years of many miracles happening through their ministries. Now, 800 more years pass... And here's this rabbi called Jesus from this little backwater town called Nazareth. And it's like, whoa, what is happening? Who is this? And there are all kinds of rumors floating around. Remember, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And some of them said, well, some think you're Elijah come back from the dead. Well, because he did miracles like Elijah did. He said, some say you're that prophet. Remember, if you were in our Bible study a few weeks ago, Deuteronomy chapter 18, there was a prophecy that a prophet greater than Moses would come. And, and, and so Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Well, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're kind of like that, that prophet that Moses talked about. Other people think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, we saw a couple of weeks ago. And then Jesus asked him, well, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter speaks those now famous words. He said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But you, you can understand why there would be so many rumors. Nothing like this has happened for hundreds of years in Israel. That this is unbelievable. It is creating mass hysteria in Galilee. People literally running for miles to get where Jesus and the apostles are. Looking for some miracle for themselves or for someone in their family. And John's record of this event tells us that after Jesus performed this miracle, that the people wanted to take him by force and make him their king. Well, why not? He fixes all their problems and gives them free food. Kind of sounds like today. Fix all my problems, give me free food, you got my vote. And that's the reason, unfortunately, that most of these folks were chasing the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I imagine this scene, I can see the twelve apostles as they're rowing away from shore, breathing this sigh of relief. Finally, we get a break from the crowds. And maybe we'll get a few days where we can kind of lay low and rest up and sleep in a little bit and kind of recover. And they, 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 they row their boats away from shore, put up the little sail. They get out on the lake. Oh, man, this is great. The people are way over on the beach. See you later, folks. <laughs> We're going to have a little R&R for a couple of days. And then as they get close to their destination, they see people on the shore again. <sighs> and somebody says, hey, look, there's... There's a couple dozen people waiting for us. Somebody says, oh wait, no, actually there's a couple hundred people waiting for us. Somebody says, oh no, there's actually a couple thousand people waiting for us. And I'm sure the apostle goes, oh please. (laughs) There goes our R&R, I guess a couple hours in the boat's it for us. Please, Lord Jesus, send them away. We're exhausted. Hey, can we just keep sailing around for a little while? Oh, but our Lord and Savior sees the crowd. And the Bible says here, he is moved with compassion, and he begins to teach. Dr. Luke, in his record of this, he records that Jesus welcomed them. He didn't say, well, I guess if you ran eight miles to get here, I might as well preach another sermon. No, he says he welcomed them, and he was moved with compassion because he said, I could see the crowd is like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep without a shepherd are lost. They are defenseless. They are confused. They are in grave danger. Sheep without a shepherd cannot survive. They will not survive without a shepherd. And so Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, they're like, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They are lost. They are confused. They are headed for doom. I can't, I can't just let it be. I'm moved with compassion. And he begins, he just walks out on the shore and welcomes them in and begins to teach again. We have spoken many times over the years about the concept of, of dying to self. Well, here it is. This, this is what dying to self is all about. Life is not about me and what I think I need or how tired I think I am or how tired of people I think I am. Being moved with compassion overwhelms my weariness and I die to what my expectations were and I keep serving. That's what Jesus did here. That's the pattern he's laying out for us. 
There's a famous missionary to India. You may not, she may not be famous to you. If you study much in the way of missions and missionary history, she's a very well-known figure. Her name is Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary to India for 55 years. She died back in the 1950s. She's been gone about 70 years now. But she was a missionary to India for 55 years, had a huge orphanage of people, of kids who'd been abandoned and out on the street. She also wrote many books and articles. I have one of her little devotional books called If. Uh, she wrote a number of one or two sentence devotionals in this book. Let me just read a few of them to you as I think, as we think about this concept of dying to self. Amy Carmichael writes, if I myself dominate myself, in other words, all of, if all I'm thinking about is me, if my thoughts revolve around myself, if I am so occupied with myself that I rarely can take a break from myself, then I, then I know nothing of Calvary love. She said, if a sudden jar can cause me to speak an impatient, unloving word, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If monotony tries me, if I cannot stand a drudgery and routine, if stupid people fret me and little ruffles set me on edge, if I make much of the trifles of life, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If interruptions annoy me and private cares make me impatient, then I know nothing of Calvary love. What's Amy Carmichael talking about? Exactly what Jesus and the apostles experienced. Trying to get away from the crowds, and they can't. So whatever the disciples were thinking and feeling, I can imagine what they were thinking and feeling. But the Lord Jesus Christ looks at the crowd, welcomes them in, begins to teach, and his, his compassion overwhelms his weariness, and he dies to what his expectations were, and he keeps serving. We also received a beautiful letter from a, a person who uh, writes to us every month or so. And it's a lady who's in her 80s, and her health is not good. I just want to read you a couple of things that she said. She said, Hi folks, the pulmonary, writing to Carol and I, the pulmonary fibrosis is progressing, along with it so many problems from lack of low oxygen levels. So that means I am not doing too well physically. However, I am doing great spiritually. God's grace meets our every need in our journey of faith through our life. But I'm still on oxygen 24-7. The Lord does not disappoint. Waiting is a very active word and brings rich rewards. Let waiting on the Lord be your highest joy, for there is a higher purpose. God has a plan and He's in all the details. As we learn to wait patiently, we find true grace. And we find that our strength and joy is in God himself. I find that waiting changes me. And I bow in emptiness and utter weakness, in humility and meekness, and I surrender to God's perfect will. This is an honor we can all give Christ, for he alone is worthy. Great thoughts from a lady dying of pulmonary fibrosis. I'm not doing too well physically, but man, I'm doing great spiritually. Just waiting on God, trusting God. You know, despite the short-sighted mass hysteria of self-focused people, 
chasing Jesus for what they can get out of it. Despite the weariness of Jesus and the apostles, Jesus was moved with compassion and he began to teach them many things. That, that is a classic illustration of dying to self. But let's look at the actual miracle. Jesus has been teaching pretty much all day. The day is far spent, the scripture said. The hour is late. So this is a, a reasonable concern for the twelve. What, what are we going to do with all these people? Notice that there are 5,000 men. This does not include the women and children. In fact, Matthew specifically records that there were 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. And if you have close to the same amount of women in the crowd, and then you, as there were men, and then you throw in some kids, you could easily have fifteen or 20,000 people on this hillside. It's getting late. What in the world are we going to do with all these people? Jesus tells them, I have to smile. Why don't you guys get him something to eat? Now the Apostle John, when he writes his record of it, he, he was there, according, he was there, he was there with Jesus, he was there to witness all this. He says Jesus was testing us because he already knew what he was going to do. But just a, a little protesting goes on from Philip, not mentioned here in the Gospel of Mark, but you see him in other places. Philip says, Lord, how how, how can we do this? <laughs> He said, how, how can we possibly feed all of, all of these people? We're, we're in the middle of nowhere. There, there's nowhere to buy food, and even if there was food to buy, how, are we gonna, how can we spend 200 denarii of food to, to go buy them? That amount doesn't really mean anything to us until we remember that the average working class person earned one denarius a day. That was the normal wage. So Philip is saying here, eight months of wages won't buy enough food to feed this crowd. Even if we could find food in this deserted place to buy to feed them. You could take one average working class guy, his salary for eight months, and, and we couldn't possibly buy enough food for this crowd. There was no human solution except to send them all home hungry. That was the only solution from the human standpoint. Of course, in the compassion of the Lord Jesus, not just compassion for their spiritual lostness, but also compassion for their physical needs, he tells them to see what food is available. Now, if you've spent any amount of time in church, you know the story. They find a boy with a sack lunch. And I thought, that's interesting. In this gigantic crowd, there's only one mother who was thinking clearly. There's one kid in the whole crowd of 20,000 people who's got a sack lunch. Good for her, whoever she was. She sent her kid out with, with a sack lunch. Five loaves and two fish. Now the word loaf may be misleading. It's not a loaf of bread as we might use the word. It was, it was a heavy bread we might think of more of like a biscuit. Uh, it would be shaped like maybe a small hoagie bun or round like a biscuit, about a half an inch thick. It was a very heavy bread. And he, he had five of those and he had two fish. The fish would be smoked or pickled. They, they were meant to be eaten with the biscuits. It was a nice little sack lunch in that day. It'd be great. Take, you know, break off a piece of the fish and of that smoked or pickled fish and stick it on the, the biscuit and, and, and eat away. You make all these little sandwiches out of it. And, and so the Lord Jesus Christ takes that little kid's sack lunch. And he does what only the creator of the universe can do. He creates food out of nothing. He just keeps breaking up the biscuits and the fish, 
He's giving it to the disciples to hand out to the people. They're all divided up in groups of 50 or 100. And and he keeps going until 20,000 people get full. He didn't just give them a snack and say, I hope that holds you over till you can find some food. Look at verse 42. So they all ate and were filled. He stuffed them all. Jesus is, is, he is creating bread from nothing. The grain has not been planted or grown or harvested or ground into flour or mixed with oil and baked. He is just literally creating it right before their eyes. They don't see it because it just appears he's breaking off pieces of the biscuit, but he just keeps going and going and going and going and going. He is literally creating pickled or smoked fish that never swam in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is just making it out of nothing, probably the best biscuits and fish anybody had ever eaten. But can you imagine the quantity? What would it take to fill up 20,000 people so that nobody is hungry and everybody is stuffed? I mean, it's incredible. And and why why couldn't he do it? Because in the the book of Genesis chapter 1, he says, let there be light. Poof, there's light. Let there be earth. Poof, there's earth. Just by the power of the Word of God, He created it out of nothing. You and I can't do that. We, everything we create, we have to start with something. If we're going to build something, we get, we get lumber. We get a saw. We start cutting. We start nailing. We start screwing things together. We start building things. We, cut, we, we, we construct things out of other things. But God can create out of nothing. Because He created matter. He created all the things that we build with. And so the Lord Jesus Christ here, right in front of all these people, is literally just breaking off, breaking off, handing it out, breaking off. Here's some more, here's some more, here's some more. Just breaking off food. I mean, and he's literally creating food for 20,000 people, and they eat until they're all stuffed. But we not only see the creative power of the Creator, but we see His astounding omniscience. Jesus knew how much to create. And how much would be left over? He not only knew what he had to create, he knew when to stop. He needed 12 baskets of leftovers. Never, it never really dawned on me until this week. I've read this story, I don't know how many times, all, all of my life. And I thought, wow, 12 baskets of leftovers, that's really cool. But then as I started to think, why, why, why did he need 12 baskets of leftovers? Why didn't he just stop when he knew everybody was full? Why well, just go and gather it all up so nothing gets lost, he says to the disciples in the Gospel of John. So they have 12 baskets full. Well, you know why? Because the, the apostles hadn't eaten yet. They needed supper too. That's my theory. So the all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe created exactly the right amount of food to stuff 20,000 people and have just enough leftovers for the 12 apostles. And why do we worry about anything? No wonder Jesus said to the apostles on more than one occasion, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The the, the omniscience of God is absolutely mind-blowing. But there's more. In John's Gospel, he, he, he records that the people showed up again the next morning, and Jesus tells them, You are looking for me, Not because you saw the miracle, but because you ate the bread. He's basically telling them, 
you just want to use me to get what you want. Who I am and why I'm here and what my message is just blows right by you. Yesterday's miracle just blows right by you. And as I thought about this, I was trying to explain this to Carol of the day. I just got, I just got just so emotionally overwhelmed all with all this. And I'll tell you, that's the way I was feeling yesterday at the funeral of this poor young man. But, but just thinking about these people, thinking about the very Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world, the Creator of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign Creator stood right in front of you yesterday and preached and taught about the kingdom of God all day and then created out of nothing enough food to feed 20,000 of you and all you do is show up the next morning looking for, free, for, more, for, for, for a free breakfast. Boy, you talk about unbelief. Here is, here is God in the flesh standing right in front of you. Creating this, creating food out of nothing to feed this hillside full of people. And all you do is show up the next day looking for another free food. And I want you based on that to turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, just four verses. And I'm winding down here. Just in case you're worried about lunch. Matthew 11. Let's start to read in verse 20. I'm going to go to verse 24. Then he, and it's Jesus, if you're from the context, it's Jesus speaking. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you. Oh, Bethsaida. Oh, where he just was. Feeding the 5,000. He was there, right outside town. Woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You know the history of Tyre and Sidon, wicked, idolatrous, immoral cities. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, <laughs> Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters of his ministry in Galilee, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Sodom? You kidding me? Capernaum? And he says, if I had done in Sodom what I did at your town, they would have repented. Sodom? That's what he says. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Wow. This passage tells us several things. you got three nice little respectable Jewish towns on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Chorazin, Capernaum, Bethsaida. They weren't worshiping idols. They weren't living immorally. They weren't living wicked lifestyles. They're nice little respectable Jewish communities. Yet Jesus says in the day of final judgment, Tyre and Sidon, these wicked, idolatrous, immoral cities, and Sodom, wow, 
will be judged less harshly than those three cities. Why? Because Jesus performed hundreds of miracles along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He just We just read it. He created food for 20,000 people just outside Bethsaida. Yet all they did the next morning is show up looking for a free breakfast. So Jesus says judgment will be less harsh for Tyre and Sidon than for Bethsaida. This passage tells us a lot of things. It tells us, first of all, that there are degrees of judgment in the lake of fire. Some suffer more than others. Just what Jesus saw about it. It be more tolerable for them than for you. There are degrees of judgment, degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. It also tells us that those who are outside of Christ will be judged for what they did with the light that they were given. What did they do with the spiritual opportunities that they were given? How did they respond to the truth that they had heard? This passage also tells us that in the astounding, mind-blowing omniscience of God, He not only knows what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future, He also knows what could have happened or would have happened if the situation were different or what should have happened. God knows not only what happened and what will happen, He knows all the possibilities of what could have happened. That's why I say God's omniscience is just mind-blowing. And there, there will be no excuses on the day of judgment because God knows all the possibilities as well as all the realities. Nobody will ever be able to say to God, well, Lord, if, if, if my dad hadn't done this, or if my mother hadn't been like this, or if my brother hadn't made me do this, or if my neighbor hadn't made me, no, 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 no. God says, I not only know what you did, I know what you could have done, or should have done, or would have done, if the situation's different. I not only know the reality of what happened, I know all the possibilities. See, that's what he says here. If Sodom had seen all the miracles that Capernaum saw, Sodom would have repented. He knows all the possibilities. Now, thankfully, praise God, there, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 tells us. Praise God and hallelujah. But if you are not in Christ you are still standing under the judgment of God. And there will be no excuses on the day of judgment. Because God knows what you would have done if the situations had been different. There's no way we will ever be able to rationalize or justify. And according to John 6, you know it's interesting too when you read through the rest of John 6, the day after Jesus performed this miracle, many of his disciples quit and they quit following him. I'm thinking, really? The next day? That's what the scripture says. You can read it in John 6. The day after he fed, these, fed all these people. A lot of his disciples heard him teaching. And it says they left him. And they didn't walk with him anymore. Jesus turned to the twelve after that. And he said, will you also go away? And Peter answered those wonderful, beautiful words. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Have you come to believe this? Are, are, are you in Christ? Or are you like the people in this story that, 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 that we read? They see God doing all these wonderful things. And you see God working in people's lives that you know. And you see God working in your life. And, and, and you feel the moving of the Spirit of God in your heart. But, but all you're chasing Christ for is what you can get out of it. That's what Jesus is condemning there. Can you say, as the Apostle Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Are you, are you in Christ today? If not, I plead with you, come to Him today. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful passage in thousands of ways. How mind-blowing it is to just imagine your omniscience, your your all-knowingness. All of the things that you know. You know the past, you know the present, you know the future, and you know all the possibilities. It just blows our little puny human minds to even try to comprehend all that you know. And Lord, you know our hearts. You know our motivations. You know why we're pursuing Christ, why we're seeking the Lord. You know what our, what our hearts really are. And I pray, Lord, that we will get this wonderful, glorious glimpse of Jesus Christ for who He is and all He is. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Creator of the universe. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, compassionate Son of God who looks at us as sheep not having a shepherd and continues to teach and continues to provide and continues to reach out. Lord, may we come to You with an honest, humble heart, confessing our sin to You and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Lord, I pray for every person in this room today that they will make sure that they are in Christ. We ask you these things in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.